0: Okay, I may need to do a little bit of a focus here and I think I'll raise this up a bit yeah oh yeah that's the top part it's a little cockeyed but I don't I guess that's as far as it goes all right Ah. okay there we are All right. Why does the public seem to see a conflict between scientific and spiritual reality? I I had second thoughts about the word reality in here, but I mean spiritual reality, or talking about them as if they were two different realities, but I think. Yes. Okay. All right. So, is there a conflict, and why does the public see that there seem to think there is? Uh, So, and how do we correct that conflict if we can? Well, I'm going to start by reading an account here of an event that happened in the life of Jacob Lowen, who is a um, missionary. He was a missionary and also an ethnographer in Panama. And uh, he uh, was uh, with, with this church in the Choco, uh, with the Choco people. He was in Panama in 1961 with David Wershey at a recently started Choco church. And Aureliano, the prophet of the young church, invited them to be his guests. His wife, Nata fell ill and became seriously ill before long. Jacob had done a few medical studies enough to recognize the symptoms of pneumonia. He dispatched a messenger with a canoe to the nearest town to see if he could get penicillin. No medicine was available, and the pneumonia got worse. And now quoting, About that time, I happened to be reading the book of James in my devotions. And when I got to the fifth chapter, and there read that if any person is sick, He shall call the elders and they shall anoint the person with oil and the prayer of faith will raise the sick. I suddenly found myself in a fierce inner struggle. I knew what Numakaki looked like. I knew what the material antidotes were. But I didn't have a category for the Spirit of God in the germ-killing function. I suddenly realized that I didn't have the faith to truly believe that God would heal. In fact, my Christian culture had taught me you should never pray this prayer without adding, If it be God's will. After more inner struggle, Jacob translated the passage into the Choco language and gave it to his host, then went out in his banana plantation, walking and struggling with his conscience for an hour and a half. He went back to the house. Aureliano, the the prophet, was very upset. He said, Where in the world have you been so long? Jacob replied, What's the matter? Were you looking for me? We certainly were looking for you. We wanted to know where you got this message. I got it from the Bible. Can you prove it? Yes, I can. And Jacob read the portion from the Spanish Bible. How long have you known the message was there? More than a week? Oh, yes, I have known it for a long time already. Well, how come you didn't say anything when you saw my wife dying? I don't know. What were you afraid of? I was afraid it might not work. What might not work? That if we pray, God might not heal. Well, why shouldn't he heal if we pray? Five leading men of the church were present with David and Jacob. They got in a circle around the sick woman. The Chocos applied the oil to her chest. The two men at the end of the circle put their hands on the woman's chest and prayed to God for her healing. She was visibly relieved after the prayer. But next day, Nata had a relapse and appeared to be dying. While Jacob debated with himself about what to do next, the Indians again anointed the sick woman and prayed, this time without inviting David and Jacob. Immediately she got up and began to do her housework. Sounds like something you would read in the, the book of Acts. Later, Jacob said to Aureliano, Isn't it wonderful this morning Nata was dying, and now she is well making supper? He said with smiles all over his face, Yes, that spirit of God is really powerful. When he goes after those fever spirits, they really run. Jacob made note of this fact that he and David had not been invited to the prayer circle. At this point, Aureliano's smile dropped. He put his arm around Jacob's sh- shoulder and said, Jake, I am sorry, but it doesn't work when you and David are in the circle. You and David don't really believe. Uh, this, is, uh, this account is a, a, uh, uh, was uh, in an article by C. Roderick Wilson called Seeing They See Not, who is another Christian ethnologist it appears in a book called *Being Changed by Cross-Cultural Encounters*, which was published in Canada in 1994. And so, this was something of a transforming event for him. And Wilson says of Lowen, and I think there may be some people here who know about who Jacob Lowen is as a missionary in South America. He, over many years, he said no one. He knows of no one that who has, over his lifetime, more consistently lived out his Christian ideals. Lowen's cross-cultural missionary experiences have led him to appreciate qualities found within a worldview more thoroughly sacred than that into which he was socialized. Nevertheless, he finds himself unable to transcend the secular assumptions and understandings of his particular birth society. So... What does his experience tell us? Well, all of us are affected by our cultural climate. We live in a a world in which there seems to be an unquestioning faith in natural science uh, combined with extreme skepticism about spiritual power. The early church was able to do many of the things which Jesus did, but we can't. And the Chaco seem to be able to believe with apostolic faith. And we seem to have great difficulty doing that. So, and what's going on here? We are the cultural inheritors of God's greatest revelation of him and herself to humanity. Incidentally, I threw in the her there. Why was the male gender chosen for the incarnation? was it because all the dominant civilized cultures were patriarchal think about that why do we have such a difficulty with faith and why what went wrong so it well, turns out we have a long history it isn't just the last couple of hundred years which has caused us difficulty the whole idea of theology has problems uh, Paul warned his followers against getting involved in doubtful disputations. On his first missionary trip, he avoided stopping in Athens, although he was very tempted to do so. God ordered him not to. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, in the following centuries, uh, theology came to be considered the sine qua non of what it meant to be religious. And in particular, in our present age, in the modern age, 17th century Puritan theology evolved from uh, Calvin's ideas into what I might call high Calvinism a hundred years later. uh, Took uh, Calvin's idea that we have a a transcendent God who has ordained laws of nature and uh, strongly emphasized that, the strong sense of predestination and a disbelief in free will in humans is a setup for natural science to overthrow faith in God, which has happened in subsequent years. Uh, and uh, the Enlightenment censorship of history uh, has obscured the way in which this evolved, uh, in particular uh, Newton's work on alchemy, he spent much more time working on alchemy than he did on physics. So, and he's one of the last of, this, of, this, of, of, of an age that really began during the uh, Renaissance, which kind of preceded science and to some extent motivated it. The other motivation being the, uh, the Puritan emphasis on both empiricism and rationalism. So... Uh, the stunning success of New- Newton's science has contributed to this sense of disbelief and a belief in a clockwork universe in which is basically a big machine. And uh, so as a result, we, we also have had some scientists philosophers who are not much help. I'm having a problem with the fan on this thing here. Maybe if I move this up here. I uh, won't have so much trouble. But. OK. We, we have Auguste Comte whose positivism was really the beginning of what you must, must call scientism, the idea that science is the only road to truth that eventually will discover all truth by scientific method. And in particular, thinking of natural science because they believe that the behavioral sciences can be approached in just the same way as the natural science, and the same methods can be applied. The the uh, and particularly the idea of social uh, uh, Darwinism uh, was an example of that. That somehow the 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 and that bio, biology plays a central role. So reductionism is another aspect of this. Everything is working from the bottom up. Uh, And progress is a law of nature. And, of course, Euro-American civilization is the top of the heap. And savages living in primitive cultures are less evolved, which is one of the many things that contributed to racism. And more recently, we've had Richard Dawkins who now says, man is nothing but, and by the way, nothing but is another favorite phrase, it's another aspect of reductionism, eliminating other possible causes that may be involved, even though you can explain at least some of what's going on scientifically. Um, So, the result is that the public doesn't know what natural science and social science can and cannot tell us. They believe that the results of science show what is really real. They believe that science is the only reliable source of truth. Now, many people don't profess these beliefs, but it is an attitude that is prevalent in our society. It's an undercurrent that affects everyone. We have the belief that spiritual experiences are not spiritual they're psychological they're all in your head uh, there are uh, that that it can be explained by bad digestion by uh, n- neural phenomena that it's that it's an illusion uh, We believe that uh, natural selection is what the word evolution suggests that it's some kind of uh, I, I mean, the, see, people's understanding of evolution seems to be one of two things. Either evolution in the sense that it's progressive and it's upward and it's all determined ahead of time, that it's in a mechanical, clockwork like fashion, that lower species automatically evolve into uh, more complex species, and man, of course, is the top of the heap. Um, and the other opposite end of it is that it's all random and therefore accidental and incidentally in talking about randomness uh, we tend to associate random the idea of randomness with with accident happenstance or something with no cause at all it has no meaning it has and and there this is a a dangerous connection uh, that needs to be made clear uh, in its most general use, the use of probability and the assumption of randomness is simply an expression that we don't know exactly what's going on, but we can somehow lump all these situations together and treat them as repeated examples of the same sort of thing and therefore derive some kind of information about this collection of events or objects or whatever it is that we're talking about. So the belief that spiritual experience... Let's see. Yeah, I guess I said all of that pretty well. Okay. So the public, I think, is really largely ignorant of the radical change in outlook that has occurred as a result of 20th century science, in particular of what really is implied by quantum physics and relativity. That in quantum physics, to describe things that we can observe, and I emphasize that qualification, that we can observe, probability is essential, and space and time are not absolute, as they were in Newton's physics. Um, If you look at... uh, Among the recent attempts to explain what's going on underneath quantum physics. A, a new line of thought started to emerge about 30 years ago, uh, spearheaded by a German physicist, Dieter Zey, who was soon joined by a, a Polish physicist who now is in the United States and is at uh, Caltech, as a matter of fact, uh, named uh, Wojciech Zurich. So Zurich and Zey have together and with many other colleagues described a view called decoherence, and among other things it implies that everything, everything that is measurable, every object, every phenomenon that we can measure, anything that's quantized, is coupled to everything else. And the things nature depends on the way it's coupled to its environment. Basically the things we observe, including particles or waves or something in between, are all special cases of something called a coherent state it's something that has some persistence in reality it's not evanescent and that in the background are all these quantum oscillations going on which are not necessarily accidental or random in the literal or absolute sense but in order to describe them we have to use probability to describe them because we don't know we can't measure them we can not observe them Um, I like the wave and particle aspects of nature are both projections of something more general. This has to do with the idea, of the uh, introduced by uh, John von Neumann, as really the mathematical foundation of quantum theory, that uh, the wave function that we observe, or, or in 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 uh, light waves, which is a, an aspect of the quantum wave. Uh, and the wave in the, the, the waves, the quantum wave of the electron, which we don't observe, are all special cases of something more general that is, can only be expressed mathematically in an infinite number of dimensions uh, in, a, in a space called Hilbert space. And that wave and particles that we observe both involve projections of this Hilbert space into something of, of finite dimension that we can get our hands on. And so there's this unobservable, universal, pure state quantum field, and I am sure that C.S. Lewis, being uh, in a uh, in, in both, he was at both Oxford and Cambridge, and had plenty of contact with the leading physicists of this tremendous revolution that was going on, and he must have had dozens and dozens of conversations with him, and I think he, I'm sure he grasped some of these essential ideas, and when he refers to the world as we see it as shadow lands, I think that's what he's referring to, is that we're seeing this projection. It's like a shadow of a reality that we that is that transcends us, but it could be, quote, physical in some sense, so that, that the connection is very intimate between the transcendent and the imminent. They're really one reality. Uh, now, of course, we don't know that that's the case. In a way, by saying that, I'm assuming that... That, that the uh, this view of quantum physics is a law of nature, but we don 't know that to be the case and it 's most and possibly all the quantum field theories that we 've worked on so far, the electromagnetic field uh, and the uh, chromodynamic field, which describes the strong force in the nucleus and the electroweak fields that are the, the forces responsible for electro uh, for uh, radioactive decay uh, that are part of what's called the standard model in physics, that all of these fields are effective field theories. They're not quote, fundamental laws of nature. And this immediately raises the question, do we know the fundamental laws of nature? Will we ever know the fundamental laws of nature? These are merely wonderful models that work over an enormously wide range of phenomena. Another recent development in Uh, which uh, uh, began to become really a major development in the 1970s, is uh, nonlinear dynamics, which have been around a long time, but we could only approach a few special cases. There are now more general ways of tackling this. And it it really allows for uh, things which have a lot of structural organization and you can have top-down causality instead of merely bottom-up causality which gives the lie to uh, reductionism so that things that... Uh, that and, and, of course, when you combine that with quantum theory, things unseen can have a very big effect on things that are seen. Um, and finally, we have to resort to probability and probabilistic reason and statistical inference because uh, we don't know everything. So uh, the, these sort of basic points seem to be lost on on the general public. They don't know anything about this. Um, finally, more on which people are ignorant. They've heard of Freud and they've heard of uh, B.F. Skinner and behaviorism, uh, all of the types of uh, psychology and sociology that... Um, that are based on medical models, on models that are rather mechanical in their outlook on things that are inspired uh, by analogy with Newton's kind of science, as if this is the right way to do uh, social science. And the public has also been influenced, though they don't always know it, by people like Herbert Spencer and James Fraser, the 19th century armchair Victorian social scientists, (laughs) One person has put it, uh, and they they don't know anything about Franz Boas, who I think deserves to be more famous than Freud, and his followers, and Edward Sapir. Uh, Franz Boas began the what is known as the participant observation method of studying other cultures. That is, you go in there and you really stay there and watch things very carefully, and you take careful records, and and. Uh, it's it's descriptive. Um, the idea was originally that the observer was to be an impartial observer, but it very quickly became apparent that you can't do that. You do get involved in the culture, and and some recently some uh, ethnologists have gone further than their predecessors in saying now you must become an observant participant if you want to understand what the spiritual life for example of a tribe really is you need to get involved in their rituals and then how do you deal with that if you're a christian and some of the people who have done this are christians that's what this book that i mentioned at the beginning is basically about this roderick wilson is an example he is a uh, a roman catholic and there was another uh, uh, and in fact i think he's has uh, is a monastic actually But he's been also involved in ethnography. And he mentions that he has become a shaman in one one of the North American tribes and worked with them that way. Uh, How does he jibe that with his Christian belief? I don't know. I haven't tried it myself. (laughs) I'm scared to death of that idea. Uh, But uh, in any case... uh, These are all things that I I don't want to go into this right now. But the idea that you must deal with the particular before you start to generalize and try to draw theories—it's very empirical. It says, uh, I guess at heart, I'm I'm very much an empiricist as a scientist. uh, That uh, show me the uh, oh I think I'll skip that slide. Let me go just right ahead to the final slide here. How can we deal with the problem? We need to educate the public on the limits of science as well as its strengths and and, and make it clear to them when science can speak with authority and when it can't and where, where we have to draw the line. There's no reason to allow miracles to be explained away or treated as interventions in some kind of laws of nature. Another thing we need to do is strengthen our own personal faith so that we can believe, like the Choco, um, I believe that that's really one of the motivations that was behind the charismatic movement in the 1960s, uh, which I was a part of. Uh, I'm no longer in a charismatic church. I haven't been for quite some time. But I uh, uh, I be- certainly... And I went into it as a non-believer, seeing people's lives having been changed and seeing what I saw for the first time in my life as authentic Christianity uh, being expressed in a congregation. It was a very alive congregation, very vital. And uh, somehow it didn't persist over the long term, although it persisted for quite a while. The charismatic movement, I believe, has changed and informed many of the churches in a lot of ways. There's a lot more... Mention and discussion of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers, which is really what it's all about, and uh, that, and it, and it is connected with this notion of spiritual reality, and getting in closer touch with God, and and be, finding a ways to make ourselves believe, so that we that we we can speak with greater conviction in our faith, and uh, deal with some of these. Uh, Tendencies to dismiss religion and, and Christianity, and religion in general. Okay, and, and yeah. Thank you. Um, we're already past. I'll take one quick question. I see one there. What determines the strength, balance, and the intensity of people here? The strength and intensity of what? Oh, what determines it? Yeah. Well, so it's the if is to else, it has oh, absolutely yes. It's uh, yes, absolutely that is. It's uh, it's uh, uh, it, what what happens basically is that there, you you have to describe a a composite uh, quantum system with in terms of the system itself and its environment. And you start' it 's very closely related to the way in which measurement was described by uh, uh, von Neumann what quantum measurement is. Why is it that we we see things in definite states when it uh, when your measurement instrument is not the same thing as the thing that you 're trying to observe? How is it that we can see an atom in a definite state uh, and uh, so and the answer is that somehow. Uh, by the interaction of the instrument with the system, the instrument itself is 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 changed in a way that it can align itself with the state of the thing that it's measuring, uh, so that uh, and 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 then the remaining uh, the differences are become part of the environment. So that's, it, that's part of the idea.